1900, the world's population was 1.6 billion people. Today, it's 7.3 billion people. In 1900, an American's lifespan was 47.3 years. Today, it's 78.7 years. In 1900, there were 8,000 cars on American streets. Today, there are over 263 million. In 1900, the land speed record was less than 2 miles per hour. Today, your 16-year-old can breeze by you 45 miles per hour as fast as any human needs to go. In 1900, steaks sold for 13 cents a pound. Today, steak sales for $7.93. In 1900, there were five Atlanta streets named Peachtree. Today, there are 71. It's amazing how life has changed in the last 100 years. In fact, it's amazing how life has changed in just the last 18 years, way back to the year 2000. Every year when the fall semester kicks off at Beloit College in Wisconsin, the school publishes a list. It's called the Mindset List. And it's become quite popular It provides a social barometer, a glimpse of how the incoming freshman class sees the world. Well, here is a social portrait of the class of 2021. Peanuts comic strips have always been repeats. Isn't that amazing? There have always been emojis to cheer them up. The Panama Canal has always belonged to Panama. They have always been searching for Pokemon, always, their whole life. Whatever the subject, it has always had a blog. United States Supreme Court decisions have always been available to read on a website. Justin Timberlake has always been a solo act. There's always been a digital swap meet called eBay. West Nile has always been a virus found in the United States. Vladimir Putin has always been calling the shots at the Kremlin. The U.S. has always been at war in Afghanistan. Isn't that something? The class of 2021 has never had to watch a television program at its scheduled airing time. They might have, but they never had to. Nanny cams have always been available to check up on the babysitter. NFL coaches have always had the opportunity to throw a red flag and question the referee. And that could explain a lot about this upcoming generation. And then finally, snowboarding has always been an Olympic sport. Well, a lot has changed in just the last 18 years, not to mention the last 100 years. And if the Lord Jesus delays his second coming, who knows the innovations and changes that will appear over the next 18 years. We may see robotic nurses in driverless trucks, in flying automobiles, in pain-free tattoo removal. Some of you are really hoping. Breathalyzers for cars, laser beam guns, all of this and more could be just around the corner. Study the past, look to the future, and you realize the speed at which things change. But you should also realize that there are some things that remain the same. In 1900, the distance between first and second base 
was 90 feet. Same as today. In 1900, Georgia versus Georgia Tech was an important game. It's still a big deal today. In 1900, parents fed and disciplined and educated their kids. Today, parents are still their kids' primary caregivers. In 1900 and in 1990 and in 2018, and let me tell you, in 2118, the Ten Commandments will still be the Ten Commandments. And Jesus will be the one and only way to heaven. Passing time isn't going to produce any alterations. Even after 100 years of progress, there are still some certainties in life. Kids still enjoy a piece of candy. A typical sunset is still the prettiest painting you'll ever see. And a glass of ice water still tastes great on a hot summer day. I'm no prophet, but I would predict that the same things will be true in the next 100 years as they are now. There are sights and insights that never change. And this is why I put so much stock in the words of Jesus here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. For just before he returned to heaven, Jesus shared with his disciples his strategy for spreading the news of God's love to a loveless world. And wow, was it successful. You remember when Paul wrote to the Colossians around 60 AD, he mentioned that the good news of Jesus had reached Colossae, and then he adds as it has also in all the world. In less than 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples whom Jesus commissioned outside Jerusalem on this day that we've read about, literally took the gospel to the whole known world. Without the aid of video and CDs and downloads and printing and airplanes, and cell phones, and websites, and satellites, and the internet, and even a PA system. The first Christians spread the gospel throughout the entire Mediterranean world. At the dawn of the first millennium, Jesus instituted a plan to reach the world, and it remains his plan today. He sends us out into our modern world with the same strategy that he gave to his very first disciples, and I believe that if we follow Jesus' timeless plan, we'll ultimately experience the very same success. Much has changed in the last 2,000 years, but much remains the same. Jesus' words to his small band of disciples are just as applicable and just as relevant for us as they were for the disciples who first heard them. Jesus wanted them, and now he wants us to receive power from the Holy Spirit, to be His witnesses, and to share the gospel locally and globally to the ends of the earth. But in Acts chapter 1, when the disciples approach Jesus, the spread of the gospel is not their primary concern. In fact, their minds are on apocalyptic events, prophetic timetables, the end of the world. They ask Jesus, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were thinking of his return. And over the centuries, this has often been the preoccupation of the church. We always seem to be looking at current events, trying to overlap them with biblical prophecies. Who might be the Antichrist? Is Syria and Iran about to draw Russia into Israel? Will the barcodes and the Scanners be the technology that creates the mark of the beast, etc., etc. 
don't misunderstand. I believe that Jesus is coming again. He's coming soon. The next big event will be the rapture of the church. He's going to snatch us away. And he wants us alert to the indicators. In other passages, Jesus has much to say about the end of the age and the coming of his kingdom. Today, signs of the end times abound. But in Acts chapter 1, the Lord's primary concern for his disciples was not his return. Jesus was focused not on the end times, but on the meantime. Between his ascent to heaven and his descent at the rapture, there's work to be done. And in our text, the disciples are concerned about the end of time, but Jesus is concerned about the end of people, the quality of their lives and of their eternities. You remember back in John chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus said of his own mission on earth, he said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, for the night is coming when no one can work. Guys, the world we live in is going out of business. But there's work to be done before it ends. Jesus will return in a flash. And we should be watching and ready. But a more urgent concern is what kind of splash can we make on this earth? Can we count for Jesus? How can we impact others so they too will desire to follow Jesus? Well, here in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus gives his followers their mission. They're to influence the world with God's love and truth. And he sends his troops out in three postures. They are kneeling, and they are standing, and they are marching. They're on their knees, they're on their feet, and they're on the move. Jesus tells them in verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is also how we'll win the world of our day to Jesus. It's how we'll impact Gwinnett County and this Highway 78 corridor. The strategy hasn't changed. The spoils go to the army that kneels, that stands, and that marches. Admittedly, we are a small band of believers Our apparent resources are limited. Though we've existed for a while, many folks don't even know of us. But the outlook for us is just as bright as it was for Jesus' first followers. When the church first started, there were only 120 disciples, fewer of them than of us. Yet their ranks soon swelled. For Jesus' strategy worked in the year 32 A.D., And again in the year 320 A.D. and 1320 and 1720 and 1920. And trust me, it'll still work in 2020. We'll count for Jesus in this community. We'll reach people and see them saved and help them grow by kneeling and by standing and by marching. Well, first, Jesus wants his church to find its power on its knees. He promises us, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. God's plan for us involves our kneeling and standing and marching, but the sequence here is crucial. You know, a child doesn't walk until he learns to stand up, and he doesn't stand until he first learns to crawl on his knees. 
And a Christian's mobility also begins on his knees. You know, Jesus has sent us out into a hostile world. In Ephesians 6 verse 12, we're warned what we're up against. Spiritual hosts of wickedness, evil principalities, wicked powers, rulers of the darkness of this age. Ultimately, the battle is spiritual. Our enemy is supernatural, thus conventional weapons are useless. Hey, it's not like Calvary Chapel is supporting the local VFW, or we're raising funds for the community center, or we're selling Girl Scout cookies. That's not our mission. We are locked in the life and death struggle for the eternal souls of men and women. The stakes are high here. This is why we need supernatural assistance. To do God's bidding, we need God's Spirit. Pastor John Stott writes, Before Christ sent the church into the world, He sent the Spirit into the church. The same must be observed today. Every year on New Year's Day, Pasadena, California hosts the Tournament of Roses Parade. Floats are covered with flowers. I mean, it's, it's a gorgeous spectacle. Corporations and groups, they all spend big bucks on their parade entry. Well, one year, in the midst of the parade, an especially elegant float began to sputter. It ended up coming to an abrupt halt. It turned out the float had run out of gasoline. The parade was halted until someone fetched a can of gas. But what made the moment such an embarrassment was the out-of-gas float was sponsored by the Standard Oil Company (laughs) with its vast oil reserves. And a church can resemble that out-of-gas float. We can be elegantly decorated and efficiently organized and abundantly subsidized. Yet if there is no gas in our tank, we are not going anywhere. We'll become stranded. Understand, it doesn't matter what gadgets a church buys or what buildings they build or the people they hire. If they're out of gas, they're not going to go anywhere. Above all else, we need spiritual gas in the tank. And we are sponsored by the spiritual equivalent of the Standard Oil Company, are we not? I mean, God has vast holdings of supernatural wisdom and overcoming boldness and divine love. Before we go out to win the world for Jesus, let's stop and kneel and make sure that there is gas in our tank. Spiritual effectiveness begins in a kneeling posture. For the Holy Spirit to come upon us, He needs the right surface to land. This is why we need to bow low. Realize when you bend your knees, it affects every other part of your body. When I bow, it drops my head. It softens my heart. It relaxes my stiff neck. It eases the strain on my eyes. It even rests my arms and my legs. Actually, a kneeling posture takes the pressure off of every other part of my body for all of my weight shifts to my knees. And the same is true figuratively. A kneeling posture is an outward expression of an attitude of humility. And whenever I humble myself and acknowledge my need for God's help, when I roll the weight of the work and the burden of the responsibility onto God, I end up at rest. When I depend on the Spirit's movement, my movements become more powerful. 
It's been said, when we rely on organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely on enthusiasm, we get what enthusiasm can do. When we rely on human excellence, we get what excellence can do. But when we rely on the Holy Spirit, we get what God can do. And His efforts are vastly superior to ours. In a work for God, there is no substitute for spiritual power. Not well-greased organization or slick presentations or even state-of-the-art equipment. We need God's Spirit to do God's work. And He'll fill us to overflowing if we humbly ask. If the Calvary Chapel movement has a motto, it's Zechariah 4 verse 6. I heard my pastor say it a thousand times. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. God's spirit fuels our witness. The Holy Spirit is the power who guides our steps. He is the one who brings to fruition God's work in people's hearts. Let's always remember, let's never forget the secret of our strength. This morning, if you've run out of gas, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit or filled again with the Holy Spirit, we're going to take communion and we're going to invite you to the altar. You can linger here and receive prayer and we'll ask God to fill your tank afresh. But after kneeling, God wants us standing He wants us on our knees and on our feet. Don't you think it's time to really take a stand for Jesus Christ? Don't you think? In Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells his disciples, You shall be witnesses to me. Notice he doesn't say, You shall witness. He says, You shall be witnesses. A witness is something you be. Not something you do. The act of sharing our faith matters only after we have been a witness. One of Christianity's fiercest skeptics once remarked, These Christians must show me they are redeemed before I will believe in their Redeemer. He had it right. The proof is in the pudding. A faith that doesn't impact you and change your life shouldn't be exported. You know, it's been said, the reason most people become Christians are other Christians. And the reason most people don't become Christians are other Christians. A changed life has a powerful appeal. But a hypocritical life is a powerful deterrent. Hey, do you allow your relationship with Jesus to influence all your other relationships? You should. Does a love for God permeate every area of your life? Are all your perspectives and habits filtered through God's Word? Do you live your creed or do you merely quote it? I love the story of Sun Lee. Sun Lee and his family were Vietnamese refugees. They came to our country with nothing but the shirt on their backs. A Christian named Jim got involved in Sun Lee's family. He brought him some food, he found him some temporary housing. Jim even got Sun Lee a good job. Jim hoped to be able to share his faith with Sun Lee, but Sun Lee didn't know English. After several weeks, Jim thought he would give it a try. He explained to Sun Lee about God's love, what Jesus had done on the cross. Sun Lee looked perplexed. Jim knew that his friend could grasp maybe a third of what he was saying to him. And he was just about to give up when Sun Lee blurted out, If you're God like you, 
Sun Lee want to know him. Jim's witnessing was effective because he had been a witness. You see, you'll be a witness and you'll never lack an opportunity to share your faith. It's interesting, in our text, the Greek word translated witnesses is the root of our English word martyr. We think of a martyr as a person who lays down his life for the cause of Christ. But before you can die for Jesus, you first must be willing to live for him. A true martyr lays down his life in multiple ways. I'll never forget April the 20th, 1999. I think it was for my generation a watershed moment in American history. Two gunmen stormed into Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado and went on a killing spree. The horror unfolded on television before our very eyes. When reports were released about the attack and its motivation, it sent chill bumps up and down my spine. Several students were targeted for no other reason than their faith in Jesus. Suddenly, I realized, you realized, millions of Americans realized that it's not just the Christian in a communist-controlled country or a Muslim-controlled country that can be killed for their faith. It can happen right here in America. Columbine was a wake-up call. It sure have alerted us that at any time and anywhere and to anyone, we may be called on to take the ultimate stand. You know, often we get lulled into thinking that life is really only about work and school and Little League in the evenings and barbecues on Saturday and even church on Sunday. But one day, a madman in a trench coat may hold a gun to your head as he did to Rachel Scott. He literally reached down, lifted her head by the hair, and asked if she believed in God. Rachel said yes, and it cost her her life. What would you have said? Let's get real. If we can't muster the courage to live for Jesus now, how will we die for him then? God calls us to be martyrs or witnesses. Let's stand for Jesus, willing to die for him and also willing to live for him. I think both attitudes are really one and the same. Daryl Scott, Rachel's dad, says his daughter had shared her faith with her assailant weeks earlier. Rachel was more than a martyr. She was a witness. When Daryl speaks to crowds, he quotes a prayer Rachel wrote in her journal. I want heads to turn in the halls when I walk by. I want them to stare at me, watching and wait and wanting the light you put in me. I want you to overflow my cup with your spirit. I want you to use me to reach the unreached. And God answered her prayer. Her testimony still touches lives. You know, we assume that heroes and cowards are made in the moment of crisis, but not so. A desperate situation is only an opportunity for what you already are to surface. A crisis doesn't produce a champion or a chicken. It simply reveals who's who. It's been said Christians are like tea bags. You learn what's inside when they're placed in hot water. That's why we need to prepare for the crisis ahead of time. Tomorrow's decision is made today. We need to start now taking the steps that cause us to muscle up and grow strong in our faith. When we first come to Jesus, we're babes. But hey, we don't need to stay that way. 
The Bible is clear. There are no playpens or pacifiers or teeth and toys in heaven. Between coming to Jesus and going to heaven, we're supposed to grow up. Once there was a group of tourists, they were driving through the European countryside. The group had taken a particular interest in the hometowns of famous people. Well, as they entered one village, a tourist shouted out of the bus. He asked one of the locals, hey, were any great men born in your village? The guy replied, nope, only babies. (laughs) Faith-filled men and women aren't, they're not born. They're developed. They're grown. And spiritual growth isn't quantum physics. This isn't hard either. It's easily explainable. The keys to growing spiritually also haven't changed in the last 2,000 years. You study and you apply God's Word. You pray and you worship Him daily. You move out of your comfort zone and you start taking steps of faith. You obey the Holy Spirit's promptings. You make a commitment to your church. You serve the Lord and hang out with other believers. The point is, you don't grow by accident. It's the result of making right choices. A youth group had their motto painted on the wall of their room. It said, keep the faith, baby, not the baby faith. I like that. It's time for us to take a stand for Jesus and decide that we're going to grow and be all that we can be for him. And it's also time to march. For Jesus' plan for his church is to get down on our knees and up on our feet And then out on the move. There's a big world out there. And many of the people who occupy it are lost without the love of God. They need to be persuaded to come to Jesus. We need to get outside our comfort zone and begin to make a dent. Notice in our text, Jesus tells his followers to move out in expanding spheres. Jerusalem and to all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Think of your Jerusalem as your family and friends. Do you have any family members who don't know Jesus? Our Judea is our subdivision, perhaps our cul-de-sac. Everybody in your cul-de-sac, sure of their salvation. Our Samaria, think of that as Gwinnett County and Metro Atlanta. And the ends of the earth, well, that's the ends of the earth. Let's have an ever-broadening influence. Don't stop praying for your spouse or your prodigal child. That's your Jerusalem. Bake a pie. Do a kind deed for a neighborhood friend. Love your Judea. Let's pray and give and care and serve and make Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain the best church it can be to reach our Samaria. And with a growing and healthy church, who knows what impact we can have on the ends of the earth. I have a neighbor across the street. Not long ago, the paramedics paid him a visit. They rushed him to the hospital. Turns out it wasn't so serious. He'd just been hit with a bout of vertigo, but it put him on his back for a few days. I knew he'd be laid up for a while, so I decided to mow his lawn for him. you got to realize, my neighbor is an independent fella. It would be taking a chance for me to try to help him out in any way. He doesn't often like that. My plan was to mow his lawn while he was laid up, when he was still at the hospital. But the day I decided to do it, before I finished, he pulled up in his car. When he asked me what I was doing, 
I told him, I said, well, I was mowing my yard, just kind of spending time with Jesus. And then Jesus walked across the street into your yard. And I just followed him over here. I, I figured he couldn't argue with that. Hey, I'm still praying for my neighbor. I'm hoping that some act of kindness will open up a door where I can lead him to Jesus. Let's all reach out to our Jerusalem and our Judea. Together, let's impact our Samaria. And ultimately, let's reach our world. In Gwinnett County, the immigrant population is exploding. God is bringing the world to us. We need to be looking for ways to share the gospel with our world. During World War II, prisoners at a Nazi concentration camp were forced to convert waste products into synthetic alcohol. It was a fuel additive the Nazis were using. When the Allies bombed the camp, the Nazis punished the inmates. They forced all of the inmates to load up all the rubble from the air raid and pile it up on one end of the field. When the prisoners finished the task, the guards ordered them to carry it to the other end of the field. They went back and forth, back and forth for week after boring week until all the prisoners began to crack up under the strain. Some tried to escape and were killed. Others electrocuted themselves by jumping into the high-voltage fence that surrounded the camp. A few went insane. It was said of their plight, because their work made no sense, their lives had no meaning. And this is the problem with people today. Life is empty and meaningless because they have no real purpose. They go to work to make money so they can buy a home where they can rest, so they can get up the next morning and go to work to make more money, so they can pay for their home. And the cycle just gets repeated over and over for a lifetime. And people ask, what's the point of all this? Where's the overarching purpose? That kind of life is an exercise in futility. In essence, you're just moving a pile of worthless rubble from one end of the field to the other and for no good reason. Reminds me of the executive who was climbing the corporate ladder. When he finally got to the top, he was still depressed. He moaned, I spent my whole life climbing a ladder that was leaning against the wrong wall. This morning, the Holy Spirit wants to enroll you and I in a cause with real teeth. Jesus wants your life to count for eternity. Are you kneeling and standing and marching? Guys, we live in unparalleled times, in thrilling times. I believe Jesus is coming back soon. We may actually be in the last two minutes of the fourth quarter. We may be in stoppage time. I mean, the game is virtually over. But in the meantime, there's work to be done. We can influence people for all eternity. We can introduce them to their creator and build up his kingdom in their hearts. Can you think, can you imagine of a more worthwhile enterprise? I can't. Let me close with an imagined account of the dialogue between Jesus and an angel right after our Lord had returned to heaven after this occasion with his disciples once he had ascended. Well, when Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, this angel asked him, did you finish your mission? Jesus replied, yes. 
All that needed to be done has been finished. The world can now be saved. The angel asked him, he said, well, has the world, has all the world heard the good news? Jesus said, no. I left that responsibility with my disciples. Well, the angels knew the disciples. Their frailty, their unreliability. He scratched his head and he said, what if they fail? What's your contingency plan? And Jesus answered him, I have no other plan. A lot has changed over the last 2,000 years, but one thing hasn't. God's plan for reaching this lost world with his love and truth, for he reaches it through us. The book of Acts starts with a room full of frightened followers, but these people go out kneeling and standing and marching on their knees and on their feet and on the move. And God uses these very first followers to shake their world. He wants to use us in the same way. And He will if we'll trust Him. Let's kneel and pray for the Holy Spirit's power. Let's take a stand for Jesus regardless of the cost. And let's march into our Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth letting the light of Jesus shine from our lives. This is the Lord's plan, and it's a plan that works.